This is number B4320. Derek Prince speaks on the subject, Prayer and Spiritual Warfare. This message is entitled, The Power of Proclamation. Now, the theme that I'm going to be speaking on, I have entitled, The Power of Proclamation. And we're going to begin by making a proclamation. This is a pattern proclamation. Proclamation is declaring something out publicly, boldly, and for us as believers in Jesus, it means we proclaim the truth of God. It's a, a truth of experience that God has brought us into through this almost three-year war that we have been fighting for Ruth's life. In the course of the war, I have written a book which is now with the publisher and should be out in September of this year entitled Blessing or Curse, You Can Choose. And uh, the lesson that I'm sharing with you is one of the many lessons that God taught us as we fought this war. So we're going to begin by a proclamation which is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 6 through 11. But we're not going to quote it exactly the way it is because one of the secrets of proclamation is to personalize what the Bible says generally. So many times, not always, when the Bible says you, we turn it around and say we. So this is 1 Peter 5 verses 6 through 11 based on the New King James but not exclusively. Therefore we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time having cast all our care upon him for he cares for us. We are sober, we are vigilant because our adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by our brotherhood in the world. But the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after we have suffered a while, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Now, what I want to do this morning is teach on how to use God's word in proclamation. As I've shared already, it's a lesson that we have learned in the hard school of experience. We are not offering you a theory this morning. We're not offering you theology. We're offering you something intensely practical which we have proved really works. Actually, in my ministry, I hardly ever preach abstract theory or theology. Almost everything that I preach has its origin in something that I've experienced and something that God has taught me through experience. Somebody said one once, the man with an experience is not at the mercy of the man with a theory. And what really has blessed me over the years is that our faith in Jesus Christ is not just a theory. It's verified in our experience. It really works. To introduce this theme, I want to take an analogy from an experience of Moses when God called him to go back from the desert and to be the leader of God's people to bring them out of Israel. You may remember that the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush and spoke to him out of the bush. And uh, I'm going to read just a brief portion from that passage in Exodus chapter 4 
and base my illustration on that passage in Exodus 4. What I'm going to be speaking about is the part that Moses' rod played in the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Beginning in Exodus 4 verse 1, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me, or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord has said, Go back and tell them that I've appeared to you. Moses, who was very cautious, said, Well, suppose they won't believe me. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And every shepherd carried a rod. I mean, it was nothing particular or special and Probably that rod had been in Moses' hand many, many years. He didn't see any importance in the rod. The Lord said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And everybody knows who knows snakes, you don't take snakes by the tail. It's a frightening thing to catch a snake by the tail because it, its head will turn around and bite you, see. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. And then the Lord said that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So in essence, I'm condensing this God said, you have all you need in your hand. It's that rod. If you once can realize the power in that rod, that's all you're going to need. And then he said, a little later on in the same chapter, verse 17, and you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do signs. So there were three phases, really, in the Lord's dealings with Moses about the rod. First of all, Moses had had that rod in his hand a long while. He didn't know its potential. He had no idea of what that rod could be and could do. Secondly, when he discovered, he became afraid of it. He ran from his own rod. Thirdly, when he reached out and grasped it, it became the instrument of his authority. It was through that rod that his authority was demonstrated. Well, it's quite interesting to read what happened when he went back to Egypt with the rod. This is very interesting because you might think, well, if God has shown him the wonderful power of the rod, there's not going to be any opposition. Everything will just go easily. But on the contrary, there was opposition. And it was supernatural opposition from the magicians of Egypt. It's very important to realize that the satanic supernatural has real power. Don't ever imagine that God is the only person who works miracles. Satan is also capable of working miracles. But God's power is greater than the power of Satan. So let me just read that passage there. In um, Exodus 7, beginning at verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. It was really the joint rod of Moses and Aaron. Sometimes Moses used it, sometimes Aaron used it. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Now you might have concluded, well that would convince Pharaoh. Most of us, if we found ourselves in the presence of a man who could throw a rod on the ground and become a snake, would say, this man has got more than I have. But Pharaoh didn't react that way. He said, let's see what my magicians can do first. 
So Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers or the magicians, the occult practitioners. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. Can you um, accept that? They had satanic power, supernatural power, that could change a rod into a snake. But there's an end to the story. I always like this. This is what blesses me. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. <laughs> Can you picture the scene after that? The magicians walked out. They didn't have any rods. And Aaron carried out a rod that was much thicker and stronger than the one he went in with. So that's what God's rod can do. It can meet the challenge of the satanic supernatural. Now this is very relevant because in 2 Timothy chapter 3 Paul speaks about the last days. This whole chapter is about the last days. The time at which I believe we're living. And he says in verses 8 and 9 about the practitioners of the occult that they're going to rise up and resist the church. And uh, the names traditionally of these magicians were Janes and Jambres, at least the leaders of them. And so Paul says, now as Janes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. That is the folly of Janes and Jambres. You see, this is a fact about the last days. As we proclaim the gospel and seek to serve the Lord, we are going to be challenged by the satanic supernatural. And the final conflict in these days is not going to be a conflict of theology. It's going to be a conflict of power. Who has the greater power? I often apply this to myself. Sometimes you might not believe it, but people challenge me or criticize me or disagree with my theology and I say well let's throw our rods down and may the best snake win <laughs> I've no desire to carry around a loser if I'm wrong I can be corrected but if I'm right my snake is going to eat them up now, up till now thank God it's done that so now I want to apply this to the word of God you say, well, what's this got to do with me and the Bible as a Christian? I just want to give you this little analogy. You just have to accept it that way. The rod you have in your hand is the Bible. It's a book you've carried around maybe a long while. And there are millions and millions of such books in the world and there are millions of other books. And maybe you don't know the power that could be released through the Bible. So I want to illustrate that from Moses. The first thing that Moses did was to tremble at the power in his rod. And I believe the beginning of success in handling God's word correctly is to come to the place where we tremble at God's word. Now lots of Christians carry Bibles around but they've never trembled. They've never really apprehended the awesome supernatural power that is contained within that word. God says in Isaiah 66 verse 2 To this man I will look, the one who is poor and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. God says, that's the man I'll respect. That's the man whose prayers I'll listen to. That's the man whose ministry I will bless. The man who's poor and contrite. Doesn't think he knows it all. Doesn't think he's got it all. <laughs> I came up through the ranks of the Pentecostals and I love the Pentecostals I thank God I owe my salvation and many many other things to them but there was a time I don't think it's so true now when the slogan of the Pentecostals was 
we've got it all. And I always say to people, well, if you've got it all, just show us. Don't tell us, just demonstrate it. I remember years back being in a small Pentecostal assembly in Denmark in, on the island of Fyn, in the town of Odense, which is the town of Hans Christian Andersen. And uh, there's a little assembly, and uh, there was this dear poor lady there. She was poor, she was a widow, she was infirm. And uh, we were talking about spiritual things. She said in Danish, Vi har jordihele. We've got it all. And I looked at her and I thought, if that's all, it isn't much. But the dear lady had been taught that, as we all had. We've got it all. We're baptized in the Spirit, we speak in tongues, so what more is there? Well, God says, the man I'm going to respect is the man who's poor, doesn't think he's got it all, doesn't think he knows it all. He's contrite, he's sorry for his sins and his mistakes and his errors and his failures. And he trembles at my word. You see? I think we've got to respond to the word of God, the Bible, as Moses responded to that rod of his when he threw it down on the ground. And it became a snake and he ran from it. Now I'll give you four reasons why it is reasonable to tremble at God's word. Four reasons. First of all, God's word is his creative power. Psalm 33 and verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. And verse 9 says, He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. All God needed to bring the universe into being was his spoken word. Secondly, it's the word of God that sustains the universe. In Hebrews 1.3 it says of Jesus, He's the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of the Father's person, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So the entire universe, including you and me, we are kept in being by the word of God. Thirdly, the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It reads us. Inside, it knows everything that we think, that we wish, that we will, that we feel. In Hebrews 4.12, the writer says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between the soul and the spirits and the joint and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there anything hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the one to whom we must give account. So the word of God looks right into you, reads everything within you. There's no secret, there's nothing you can hide from the word of God. That's frightening. If you realize that. Somebody said once, and I proved it so true in my own experience. Remember, when you are reading your Bible, your Bible is also reading you. I learned that before I was a believer, really, because I started to study the Bible as a professional philosopher, not as a believer. I was a teacher of philosophy at Cambridge. And uh, I thought, I better look into the Bible, because it is a work of philosophy, and I don't know much about it. So I'll, I'll read it through and give my verdict. But, and so I started, I mean, I started in an army barrack room, my first night in the army. I took it with me because it was one book that contained 66 books and I wouldn't have to go to a lot of libraries for a long while because my life consisted in going to libraries. And uh, so I started to read it and I said patronizingly, I'll check out in this book and see how I feel about it. But after, and I, I did that for about six months, but after I had been reading a little while, I just began to feel uneasy. I didn't feel so confident in myself. I wasn't quite so sure that I had all the answers. 
And things that had really attracted me, I was very keen on dancing and somewhat on drinking. And I just lost my taste for them. I was only 24 years old at the time and I thought, what's wrong with me? Am I getting old before my time? But when then I met the Lord and the moment I met the Lord, my whole attitude of the Bible changed instantly. I knew it was the voice of God speaking to me personally. I have never doubted that from that day to this. And then I realized that I'd become uneasy and disquieted because the Bible was showing me things about myself that I didn't really want to know. So remember that. Let me say it again. When you read your Bible, your Bible is also reading you. And there's nothing in you that it doesn't see. And then the final reason is that the Bible is the standard by which we will be judged. Jesus said in John 12:48, If any man hears me and rejects my words, I will not judge him. But the word which I have spoken will judge him in that day. You know that gives us a wonderful opportunity. Because we can, as it were, preempt God's judgment. We can read our Bibles, judge ourselves by it, repent and meet God's conditions, and we won't be judged. But if we don't accept the Bible that way, one day it will judge us. Now, when Moses trembled at the rod, that was the beginning. Then God said, reach out your hand and grasp it, and take it. And so when you have begun to appreciate the supernatural power and authority of the Word of God, and you've run from the serpent. Then God says, now reach out your hand and grasp it. And it becomes a rod again. And if you study the rest of the book of Exodus, really, everything that Moses did in the liberation of Israel out of Egypt was done by the rod. The rod became the instrument of his authority. God didn't liberate Israel by an army. He liberated them by a rod, carried by two men, Moses and Aaron. And I believe it's very important to realize that Israel could not get out of Egypt until Moses learned to use his rod. And I believe that's true today, until we learn the authority of God's word and how to use it, God's people are going to remain in captivity. It's an essential provision of God for releasing his people. Now, what I'm going to speak about is how to, to grasp and extend the rod. And the key word, I believe, is proclamation. It's by proclaiming the word of God in faith with divine authority that we effect God's purposes in the earth. But before I go into proclamation, let me just go back to something that's the basis of proclamation, which is confession. Some of you from Catholic or other backgrounds probably think of confession as going on Friday evening and telling the priest your sins. And those of us that were Protestants, we think about Sunday morning, we in the Anglican Church, we used to have a thing called the General Confession. We used to say, pardon us, miserable offenders, and all that. Which is true enough, but I'd have to say, all the time I was a boy in the church, I thought to myself, if all religion can do is make me a miserable offender, I can be an offender without religion and not nearly so miserable. <laughs> and that actually was the decision that I took. But... Um, Confession is much more than just confessing your sins. That's part of confession. The word confession comes through Latin from a Greek word that means to say the same as. So for a Bible-believing Christian, confession means we say the same as God has already said in his word. We say about ourselves what God has said about us as believers in Jesus. We say about the situations that we encounter, what God says about those situations. 
In other words, we make the words of our mouth agree with God's word. And the, the Bible says a tremendous amount about confession. I'll just give you three passages of scripture. All from the epistle to the Hebrews. You see, Hebrews contains the unique revelation of Jesus as what? High priest. That's right. There's no other book in the New Testament that really deals with that. That's one of the unique revelations of Hebrews and such a vital revelation. But the high priesthood of Jesus is directly related to our confession. Only when we make the right confession do we have the ministry of Jesus as our high priest operating on our behalf. Hebrews 3.1 says, Wherefore, beloved brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. An apostle means somebody who is sent forth. So Jesus was the first apostle. He was sent forth by God the Father to do something, the task of redemption, which no one else could ever do. But when he returned to the Father, having done that work, he became our high priest to represent in the presence of the Father those who had accepted his apostolic work on earth. So he's the high priest of our confession. Very simply stated, if you have no confession, you have no high priest. Only insofar as you make the right confession is the high priestly ministry of Jesus on your behalf available to you. And you will discover very quickly that Satan will do almost everything he can to stop you from making the right confession. Because when you do, He's beginning to leave his power over you. Then in Hebrews 4.14 it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith, seeing we have a great high priest over the house of God. The two are related. Then in Hebrews 10.21 and 23 it says, Seeing we have a great high priest, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Notice when you've confessed your faith twice, you move on to hope. A confident expectation of good on the basis of what you've confessed. But it says, let us hold fast our hope without wavering. Why do you think it says without wavering? It's like when they say, put the sign on in the airplane, fasten your seatbelt. It means there's going to be turbulence. Okay? It's not going to be that easy. There's going to be all sorts of pressures against you to keep you from maintaining that right confession. I've commented it this way, that when you are in a situation as a believer, there are about three things you can do. You can hold fast your confession and the authority of Jesus is exercised on your behalf. Or you can make no confession, in which case you're more or less at the mercy of circumstances. Anything can happen. Or, worst of all, you can make the wrong confession. You can make a negative confession, in which case you open yourself to negative forces. The way you use your mouth basically is going to determine the course of your life. James said the tongue is a rudder. It's just a little thing, but it determines the course of our life. That's true. He also said if any man can control his tongue, the same as a perfect man. The ultimate achievement of a Christian is always and only to make the right confession. To say always what God says about you and your situation. To say no more and to say no less. And believe me, it sounds, well it is simple, but it's not easy. Can you see the difference? Very simple in theory, but not easy to hold on. Because really of all the issues that are determined by confession, everything focuses around this. 
And this issue of confession, the forces of God and the forces of Satan meet. And we often find ourselves in a kind of vortex. We say, what are these forces that are swirling around my head? What are these pressures that I feel? I'll tell you, all the pressures of Satan are directed at one thing. To cause you to make the wrong confession. And the power of God is offered to you to enable you to make the right confession. Now confession is, as it were, I would say, the basis of proclamation. Confession is something we say in a personal way. It may be quite private or it may be public. But proclamation, I say, this is my definition, is aggressive confession. It's taking your confession and using it like Moses used his rod, stretching it out over Egypt and bringing the power of God into play. If you study the Exodus, you find every intervention of God that delivered Israel out of Egypt was brought about by the way Moses used his rod. Now, to make a confession is like lifting up a banner. Uh, David said in Psalm 20 verse 5, in the name of the Lord we will lift up our banners. So believers are supposed to have banners to lift up. And then in the Song of Solomon chapter 6 and verse 4, the bride of Christ, the church, is portrayed as an army awesome with banners. That's a, a dramatic statement. Uh, Dom was talking about being the warrior bride of Christ this morning. How do we become the warrior bride? How do we become a force that threatens the forces of darkness? What makes us awesome? It's the banners we lift up. So proclamation is lifting up a banner that becomes awesome to the forces of darkness. But together with proclamation there are two other very simple things that we need to join which are familiar to all of you but I want to put them together. If for instance I proclaim a simple statement like by the stripes of Jesus I am healed. All right? That's a very simple proclamation, but a very important one. And how many of you would agree that it's not always easy to maintain the right confession? It's easy when you're sitting in church and somebody's preaching to you and you're feeling perfectly well to say, by the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. But then you're alone on a dark night and your body is full of pain and there's no one there to pray with you. It's different then, see? So we have to maintain the right confession. But if I really believe what I've said, by the stripes of Jesus I'm healed, what's the next thing I'm going to do? If I really believe it, what's the most logical thing to do? To say thank you. That's right. I mean, if I believe that I don't thank Jesus, I'm the most ungrateful person. Now the problem with multitudes of Christians is not that they're ungrateful, but they haven't learned to say thank you. Saying thank you is the simplest and purest expression of faith. When you can't do anything else to express your faith, you can say thank you. I believe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then if you believe what you've said and you thank God for it, don't stop there. The next phase is praise. Praise him. Get excited. Speak it out. Declare it boldly. Say, thank you, Lord. I praise you. I worship you. You've been so good to me, Lord. You are so wonderful. You're so mighty. You're all wise. You're totally faithful. There's no inconsistency in you. You always stand by me. Thank you, Lord. I worship you. I praise you. You see what the pattern is? Proclamation. Thanksgiving and praise. Now you're not talking to yourself, you are, but that only to yourself. 
You're not just talking to the people next to you, if there's anybody next to you. You're not just talking to the walls or the ceiling, but you are talking to the whole unseen realm. And you have a lot of audience. God the Father is listening. Jesus the Son is listening. The Holy Spirit is listening. All the angels of God are listening. You're reaching into the, the realm where things get decided. But you've got a lot of other listeners too. Satan and all his rebellious angels and all his demons. And you know when you begin to do that you embarrass them. First of all and then you agonize them. And then they begin to say, I can't bear to listen to this any longer. Have you ever dealt with a person who had demons and you started to quote the scriptures, they would cover their ears with their hands? That's just a little indication of how painful it is for Satan to hear the truth of Jesus proclaimed accompanied by thanksgiving and praise. So this is not just a kind of religious ritual. This is it really it's life and death, actually. I think I could say, and I think Ruth would agree, that she wouldn't be alive today if God hadn't taught us these truths of proclamation, thanksgiving and praise. Satan has been out to kill her for three years. That's not a melodramatic statement. Jesus said he is a murderer. What do murderers do? They kill people. And unfortunately, many, many believers die before their time, murdered by Satan. Now, Ruth and I have probably something over 50 proclamations in our proclamation bank. We store them up and we use them as the Holy Spirit seems to indicate. So rather than do a lot more preaching, I'm going to ask Ruth to come and stand by me and we'll give you just a demonstration of making proclamations, okay? Bear in mind that these are not all. Also bear in mind that you must be led by the Holy Spirit. The proclamations that God has led us to are ne not necessarily the ones that he'll lead you to. Let me also point out the importance of memorizing scripture. We were tremendously impressed by um, a statement in a book called The Church in China. And he was writing about what the believers went through during the, um, what, the red, what was it? Red guards. That when the red guards were turned loose on the believers with the most awful cruelty and persecutions. And some of them were killed, some of them were tortured. The rest were thrown into prison. And in this book, this Chinese Christian said, the only Christians who survived were those who had memorized scripture. The others either denied their faith and betrayed their fellow believers, or committed suicide, or went insane. The only thing that held the believers was that they had the word of God. And their Bibles were taken away from them. They couldn't attend church. The only access they had to the word of God was as much as they had within them at that time. Now I'm going to give you a number of possible situations and what would be for us an appropriate response. The first one, and they're going to become a little more elaborate as we go along. The first one is when attacked by death. Death is a demon amongst other things. And it comes in to kill you. And some of you this morning are being assailed by that demon. I'll give you some of the signs. When you become morbid, when you become depressed, when your outlook on everything is dark, and maybe you even begin to envisage yourself in your casket, or to think what people would say about you at your funeral, or uh, it may be that you just have an endless series of infirmities and every time one clears up another comes out and you never really have what you call the joy of life what the French call the joie de vivre uh, there's something dragging you down overshadowing you, darkening your whole life and outlook 
Ruth and I have dealt with scores of people in this category. It's the spirit of death. In fact, we've become, uh, I would say, familiar with it. We usually can tell by looking at a person's face whether that's the problem. Well, now, what do you do? Well, here's, here's one that works. And it's very simple. Psalm 118, verse 17. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Now, we usually say them at least three times. By that time, we really know we mean it. So, we're going to do it another twice. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And in the NIV translation, it doesn't say declare, it says, I will proclaim what God has done. That's proclamation, do you see that? That's the response to an satanic assault. Now, it's not fair for us to have all the blessings. I want to share them with you. Why don't you stand up, you've been sitting a long while, and taking your time from me, why don't you make this proclamation? Now, say it as if you meant it. Picture some dark force standing in front of you and seeking to kill you. Drain your life out. Mm. And something comes over you and you say, I'm not going to submit. The Bible says don't submit to the devil. It says submit to God and resist the devil. Here's a way to resist the devil. So, I'll give you the words once. Just listen to them and then taking your time from me, we're going to say it three times. Let me say it's important to realize that if you've said the wrong thing, which most of you have at some time or other, the only way out is to unsay it by saying the right thing. You know, Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't know if you've ever realized, but by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus made Peter say three times that he loved him. That wasn't just uh, a gimmick. It was causing Peter to unsay the wrong thing he'd said, to cancel the wrong confession by the right confession. Some of you have actually said at some time or other, I wish I were dead. I'd be better dead. That's a terrible thing to say. You don't know how dangerous it is. It's like when you're driving through uh, on a highway and it's about 7 o'clock at night and you're looking for a place to stop, a motel, and you're looking for one word in neon lights. What's the word? Vacancy. Well, when you say, I wish I were dead, you're offering a vacancy to the spirit of death, you see. And it doesn't need many invitations. All right, are you ready? I'll say it once. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Are you there? I, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Now, the last time I want you to turn around and say it to somebody, because that takes a little guts to look somebody else in the face and say it. Okay? Are you ready? I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Now what do we do now? We thank Him. We praise Him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You conquered death. You're the victor. Because you're the victor, we're the victor. Because you live, we shall live. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. All right. I, I see you're learning. Now you can sit down again for a little while. Amen. Amen. Now, many of these will be familiar to many of you, but they're true. That's the important thing. First Peter 2.24 You're attacked by sickness. And I believe in going to doctors. Believe me, I thank God for doctors. I think doctors are part of God's way of helping us. But the real source of healing, I'm sure you'll agree, is God. And the real channel of healing is what Jesus did on the cross. So, again, and we've trained ourselves. You see, you can feel a pain here and say, oh, arthritis. And you know what you've done? You signed for it. Yeah. Or you can feel the pain and say, by his wounds I'm healed. You see? 
we have to train ourselves to react differently. Okay, now this is First Peter 2.24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose wounds we were healed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. All right. Now, you're under physical or emotional pressure. You say, it's too much. I can't handle that. Why did they dump that on me? Or, I just can't take any more from my mother-in-law, or whatever it might be. <laughs> God bless mothers-in-law. So, here's two very simple ones. The first is Philippians 4.13. And this is the Prince version. I happen to know Greek, and uh, I was reading the Greek one day in the New Testament, and I thought to myself, the real way to translate this verse is this. So this is what we'll, we'll give you now. Philippians 4.13. Wait a minute, I can't remember what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I can, can do, do all things through, through the, the one who empowers me within. within. I'll say that again. I can do all things through the one who empowers me within. Can you remember that? Let's all say that once together. If you believe it. I can do all things through the one who empowers me within. And then there's two verses in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 which we make an extract from. If you want to read the whole, you're welcome. But we just do it this way. Remember, you're, you're faced with something you think you just can't handle. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, when I am weak, then I am strong. We'll do that again. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, when I am weak, then I am strong. Would you like to say that one? All right, I think you've got the words and we'll say them slowly. Start with God's strength. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. You, you sung a, Thank you, Lord. a very beautiful chorus by Graham Kendrick earlier, let the weak say, I am strong. That's, that's the scriptural way to apply that. Thank you, Lord. All right, now we're going, we're trying to move from the defensive to the aggressive, see. Now we picture a situation in which your home, your business, your ministry, something that you're responsible for is under attack. And the one we use is Deuteronomy 33, verses 25 through 27. But we do this in the NIV. That was the version that Barnabas introduced to the church. You know that. All right. Deuteronomy 33, 25 through 27. This is, we make it our. It says your, we make it our. You understand? The, the bolts, bolts of our gates will be iron and bronze. And our strength will equal our days. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to help us and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out our enemy before us saying, Destroy him! <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, you see how we've moved from the defensive to the aggressive? That's right. Amen. All right, now, in times of mental conflict, how many of you would agree that the battleground is usually the mind? And God has made provision. So we're going to do 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I think we're going to do it basically in the King James Version. Uh, let me start the thing here. For though we walk in the flesh, we war not after the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing which exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now whose strongholds are we going to cast down? Satan's, that's right. Now many of us have strongholds in our own minds that Satan has built up over the years. Prejudices, fears, wrong understandings. This is one way to cast them down. By the word of God, to let the word of God cast down the wrong thoughts and habit patterns and ways of looking at things and people that have been built up in our minds. You'll find if you deal in evangelism with people, every group has got some stronghold that Satan has built up to keep them from hearing the gospel. If it's Jewish people, the stronghold is if I believe in Jesus, I'll no longer be a Jew. I've lost my identity. If it's Muslims, Jesus is not the Son of God. God has no son. And so on. It doesn't matter where we go, you find there's a characteristic stronghold. And what we have to do in evangelism is not just to preach, but to break down the stronghold with the spiritual weapons that God has given us. And you see again, think of the assignment. Here's the world in captivity through its mind to Satan. And God says, I want you to go out with the weapons that I've given you, break the hold of Satan over their minds, and bring their minds into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What a challenge. We'll say that again. I think it's too much for you to try and say just off. But we'll say it once more. I want you to think about the implications. For, for though, though we walk, walk in the flesh, we war not after the flesh. For the, the weapons, weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing which exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And then often we are concerned about political issues and the political situation and we want to pray about political events. And so Ruth and I have got a number of kind of proclamations that give us confidence that God will hear and answer our prayer. The first is one of the most powerful we've ever used. It just changes the atmosphere anywhere we make it. It's from Daniel chapter 2 verses 20 through 22 and Daniel 4 34 through 35 taken from the New King James. The last part is the confession of Nebuchadnezzar after God had dealt with him by turning him into a kind of human donkey for seven years. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Shall we give him a clap? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Amen. And then we are going to do Psalm 33, verses 8 through 12. The same theme. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen as his own inheritance. And then just a short prayer from 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 6 I think it was prayed by Jehoshaphat if I remember rightly and um, we're going to do this in the NIV just to prove that there's no favoritism O Lord God of our fathers are you not the God who is in heaven you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. You see, after you've said that, you can pray for the overthrow of ungodly governments or for the changes in political situations. You notice what he said in Daniel chapter 2, he changes the times and the seasons. Maybe we need to pray for the time or the season to be changed. You see, but if you start on that basis, you're in orbit before you start to pray. See what I'm saying? Okay. Now, one last one. This is very much an aggressive one. It's one that the Lord gave us before we started a, a ministry journey overseas. Uh, it's taken from Exodus 23 verses 20 through 27. Again, it's in the NIV. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guide you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. <laughs> Do, Do not, not bow down, down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and no one will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full life span. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. Bless your name, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We believe you. Let's stand up and praise him. Let's give him a praise of Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name. Hallelujah. Glory to your name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 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 Th
Andara la barranda, shari ala basiri, endurra marcasenda. Alla barrenda, eshi la carrasi andu. Roshandala la barriasenda. Amen. I, the Lord, your God, am with you. Do not be afraid, neither be dismayed. Have I not spoken, and I will do it. Have I not commanded, and will I not make it good. The promises I've given you, the word that I've put in your mouth, will not depart out of your mouth, nor out of your mouth of your descendants, nor out of your mouth of your descendants, descendants from henceforth forever, says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. 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 For more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, visit us online at derekprince.org.